0: The views on this podcast belong uniquely and solely to the mouths from which they emanate. He had threatened
1: to kill me in public. Why would he want to kill you in public?
0: I think she meant he threatened in public to kill her. Huh.
1: We, we, madame. No, I just want the powder of my
2: nose. I like it, but
1: I'm I don't like it. Right after. I don't like it. I don't like it. Is it recording already?
0: Yeah, but I can. Uh. I can get, <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the Weekly Linguist. I'm Jarrett Allen. And I'm Lisa Valsby-Sprows, and today Jarrett has invited Professor Anthony Grant to the podcast to talk about lexico statistics, and you may notice that I will disappear for most of this because, like technology, lexicostatistics lexico statistics is one of my downfalls. So, Jarrett, if you can talk a little bit about lexicostatistics statistics and maybe its little evil cousin, glottochronology. Why is this interesting, and why are we talking about it today?
0: Well, didn't you take Zender's historical linguistics class?
1: I did not. Don't tell him that. You did not? Okay,
0: okay. Well, he used Lyle Campbell's book, and and I remember we talked about lexicostatistics and glottal chronology, and there was a question on my exam about glottal chronology, and is it valid, and is it not valid? And so, but lexicostatistics is, it's... Prettier, more attractive cousin, I would say. <laughs> right? So, lexicostatistics is basically a process by which we measure the distance, so to speak, between two languages. Right? And so, we have cognates, which are words that are the same in two languages because they inherit them from the same mother. And you compare the cognates based on word lists that you create, and you can see how similar or how different two languages are. Glottochronology is a little different because glottochronology attempts to use this information to determine at what point these two languages split apart. And we'll talk more about it in the interview, but it's a debunked theory, to be quite honest with you. Um, it's interesting on a lot of levels, Lisa, because there's a lot of questions sometimes as where you draw the difference between a language and a dialect.
1: And don't worry, I will talk about that all the time.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, in my work in the Philippines, It's a very salient question. It comes up a lot. Um, There's very little agreement, so Mm -hmm. to speak, on that. Even among linguists, the one question we should be able to answer, we can't, right? And so, you know, we talk about that as well. Basically, I wanted to get into lexicostatistics statistics because the first few episodes, I want to talk about the diversity of languages around the world. And it's a great method by which linguists use to measure that diversity.
1: That's a good point. Uh, So... Dr. Grant knows a lot more about this, uh, definitely, than I do. So, um, Jarrett, how did you and Dr. Grant meet?
0: I emailed him asking him to help me find one of his resources that I came across because he was cited Mm -hmm. in a paper about David Zork. Oh, okay. And I had emailed him and asked him, and he graciously provided me with the information that I needed. And so, and um, very nice guy. And so when we got started with this podcast... Uh, he was one of the very first ones that I emailed and um, him and I have talked several times since then. And I think I would say we've developed a bit of a friendship. He's a very oh, nice. interesting man. Yeah.
1: All right. And uh, now if y'all are ready, we're going to hear from someone with a much more posh accent than the two of us.
0: <laughs> Here we go. Today, we are talking to Anthony Grant um, of Edge Hill University in, did I say this right, Ormskirk? Yes. Ormskirk in the in in the UK. Uh, Anthony was born in Bradford, uh, United Kingdom. He went to the University of Bradford, graduated with his Ph.D. in linguistics in 1995. Uh, Interesting dissertation title, agglutinated nominals in Creole French, synchronic and diachronic aspects. Uh, He is today the professor of historical linguistics and language at Edge Hill University, like I said, in Ormskirk. His interests uh, include uh, descriptive and historical linguistics, language contact, um, documentary linguistics, which is more along my field, Um, uh, specific languages. He's mentioned Romani, uh, some native North American and Austronesian languages. I know that he's also worked in uh, in Tagalog and Philippine languages, as well as Miskito. So, Anthony, thanks for talking to us. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me, Jared you're one of our inaugural podcast episodes and one of the reasons that we ask you to start off with us the first few episodes is that we want to start the podcast talking about language diversity and the actual you know e- existence of so many languages and so much diversity across the the world and that's obviously a huge topic but we wanted to talk about the f- spend the first couple of episodes talking about why there's so much diversity in language, and one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about was something uh, specifically called lexicostatistics. So you're going to be uh, the you're going to be the podcast's resident. Let me see if I can say this lexicostatistician, <laughs> and uh, and that's what we want to talk to you about today, and then a few other things because you and I have been able to talk a good bit and have enjoyed each other's company, and uh, have a few other things we can also discuss. Oh, by the way, one of the things that we do want this podcast to be is not too serious. So, yeah. yeah, So we're very informal. Try to laugh a little bit and kind of, you know, I I like I probably share a little bit inside baseball as to how I create this. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I just I'll be very open in this podcast. But so I just what I sit down and I sent you a list of questions and you sent me some answers and we talked about this. And so I've prepared a few questions here that we can go through based on our conversation before and based on. The, the, the written questions that I sent you. So how about if we dive right into it? Okay. So, uh, Anthony, how did you get into Lexico Statistics? And, and I mean, what interests you about it? How did it all get started?
2: Right. Well, um, I, I first came across it in 1975. I was 12 years old at the time and should have been doing more uh, Andy Hardy stroke Thomas Bailey Oldrich style boyish <laughs> things. Uh, but being a nearsighted, sighted um, skinny Catholic guy in Bradford, um, <laughs> I thought uh, I knew my limitations and I knew where I had I'd identified safe spaces before they'd even been identified in the wider world. And one of my places of comfort was a library. I'll talk about libraries a bit more later but it was crucial because in those days in the 1970s and 80s the Bradford had a very good central central library in the city center and they had a wide range of books on linguistics so did some of the, the branch libraries in the area and the Material in the Central Library in Bradford would have been enough to get anybody nowadays a good undergraduate degree in linguistics.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And one day I came across a book with a sort of buff cover that had been rather inexpertly put on the book, so it was coming a bit away at the seams, this, this kind of dust jacket. And there's a book called origin and diversification of language by somebody whose surname I couldn't pronounce. <laughs> was it Swadesh? Was it Swadesh? As if it were you know Sanskrit or something. Uh eventually I learned that it was Swadesh. Well that book is sitting on my bookshelf by the way. <laughs> it's a good book. <laughs> and I looked at it and found it pretty baffling because it's it seemed on reflection a bit like a postmodern novel. Because Joel Scherter had had the manuscript, which is incomplete, and edited it after Morris died in 1967. Joel Scherzer ended up in the job of turning it turning into a publishable book. And it contained a number of Morris's papers as a kind of, you know, bulking out, perhaps, or just um, expansion of the content. And some uh, of it was on lexical statistics. And they gave, amongst other things, the content of the Swadesh 100 word list. Right. And I thought, this looks good. And they also gave tables talking about the degree of divergence between two languages if they shared, say, 58% of cognates on the Swadesh list. And that got me curious because I was interested in languages. And at the time, I'd recently become proud owner of a couple of Pairs of dictionaries um, because Bradford had second hand bookshops in those days and it was great. I had a two way dictionary of Hungarian and a two way dictionary of Finnish. And I'd been looking at a book by, we should call him Haidu Peter, Peter Haidu, Hungarian linguist, whose book was translated into English and available in the library called Finno Ugrian. Um, languages and peoples, and he describes Ur- the Uralic languages. I was reading about that and learning a little bit about what he called historical phonology. So I thought, let's have a look and see what kind of cognates these have and where you know, where do they occur in the table. So I filled in in a notebook, which I subsequently lost, the Swadesh list contents for Finnish and Finnish and for Hungarian, and then I tried to do a kind of Cognacy count on the basis of what I knew about the um, historical phonology from this book.
0: Just as and, a, an aside, just for the the information, yeah. part, we're talking about the one hundred list because Swadesh had actually gone through three or four iterations of that list. Oh yeah, this is the one hundred. And then he found some of his words to be um, to be unusable for different reasons. So he had actually whittled it down to a hundred. So by the time you get to the seventy-one publication of of uh, of of his list, you're down to a hundred. Yeah, and this is the list that you're working off of. Okay.
2: Yes, although people are using the longer lists as well nowadays, right? Because um, you just get more information that way. Right. Um, and so I filled it out, finished, and I filled it out for Hungarian, um tried to spot the cognates. And about a third of the words on the list are cognate, and I think I came to about thirty three or thirty three percent, and I discovered it. Many years later, the number of cognates is actually thirty-four percent. So I'd missed one somewhere, and uh, I, I spent the much of the half-term break that uh, that evening of the half-term break from school doing that, pausing only for half an hour to do something even more important, which was to watch the inaugural episode of Faulty Towers. <laughs> and this is true. <laughs> And so I thought this is jolly good stuff. Um,
0: so while other you know, guys are out playing uh, football or, yeah. or rugby or or, yeah,
2: or- smoking behind the bike sheds, <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, I, it was it was something to do. November, November's in Bradford can be rather rainy, and um, <laughs> so it kept my brains subtle. But the thing about the book was it was a, it was a a portal into a whole other world because it had a bibliography of Morris's writings. And it was from this that I learned that there was such a thing as an academic journal, which I hadn't known before. I mean, why would a 12-year-old kid know about these? And so I thought, one of these days, I'm going to get something in an academic journal. Um, so I learned about what they were, what they looked like. You know, they divided into parts each year, page numbers and so on, and uh, learned the names of some of them and got a sense of what it was to be a linguist, especially in the mid-century in the United States. And it was fascinating. It was startling because there was so much that was unfamiliar. I mean, there was a chapter on the Salish and uh, phonological geography and prehistory, which would have made absolutely no sense to me apart from the fact that I recognized one of the one or two of the names as place names, I could identify where it was spoken because of the map included, which showed you know Vancouver Island and Puget Sound and the, sort of the area between the far western u s and far western Canada. Um, so it was a truly revelatory book that I happened to borrow from the library mm-hmm.
0: well when you're talking about Lexicostatistics. Let's get into what this means, and uh, I'm going to give you. I'll, I'm going to say a couple of things here, and you tell me where I'm right and where I'm wrong. Okay. But basically, lexicostatistics is the compare. It's a it's a field of historical linguistics. Historical linguistics being the study of how language changes over time, generally speaking. Yeah. So, lexicostatistics is an attempt to let's say quantify the change or the variation or the differences between two language varieties or two languages so to speak so that in order to be able to do this you like if you meant, um, a moment ago you said these two languages had a 33% uh, cognacy rate so in order to be able to do this what you do is you look for cognates and these um these cognates are often created and put into word lists by like the one that you mentioned from Morris Swadesh and, uh, and from their uh, whole bunch of their Philippine word lists that I use uh, in my work and different things. But they're put into word lists by basically common words that seem to be stable and don't change much. So having said that, you take these cognates and then you you compare them to see how different they are. So what I wanted to ask you was, tell us what a cognate is for the uninitiated, because, you know, uh, I mentioned to you before in teaching language, we often tell our students that the two words that are the same in French and English, like so in in my case are cognates, but they're usually not. Most of them are loan words and mm. there's a difference. And so, um, it, we, you know, it, when you're teaching in the textbooks, the language textbooks, they just, they get in, they're not being very precise in that matter. Mm. So a cognate is, um, a word that is the same because both languages basically got it from their mother language, so to speak. Yeah. So wh- tell me a little bit about more, wh- what is lexicostatistics? You know, where did it come from? So what is a cognate and what is lexicostatistics? And then I'm going to ask you about glottal chronology, but what are these two concepts? Okay. Well, a cogn-
2: two words can be said to be cognates uh, in different languages if they have a common history and they're, Descended from the same mother, as you said. Um, I'll give you an example. Um, as I sit in my office, I can see that it's dark outside and it's night. Now, the word night has cognates in German, such as Nacht. It has cognates in French, such as Ni, and Spanish Noche, and Portuguese Noite. Right. And it has cognates in Sanskrit, which is Nakta and in russian which is noch and in ancient greek is nox and latin nox and all these words are related to the word night in english none of the, it's not none of them are the source of the word night but they're all kind of cousins um, the, Our word night comes from a proto-germanic word a word from the language that was around about 2,500 years ago, and became German and English and Swedish and Yiddish and Icelandic and so on, uh, which became night in English would have been something like "nicht" or "nichtes," um, and this is a word that's shares a history with the Latin word and the Greek word and the Russian words because they have a common history. And you go back to Proto-Indo-European and you'll find that the word for knight is the mothership from which all these other words have descended. Which is quintessential stability. Yes, it's a very stable word in Indo-European. Doesn't mean that it's stable in other language families. it's quite stable in Austronesian, but you can find other languages where it simply wouldn't be as firm a banker for cognacy as, as it is, say, in English or German. Right. Well, I'll give an example really quick. Tagalog has Gabi,
0: right? Yeah. And uh, uh, Cebuano has Gabi'i, and then uh, Bantayanon has Gabi. So, yeah, they're very. it's a very stable, at least in Philippine languages
2: yes but if you look at your know, malay words that are different the word for night i forget it off the top of my head in malay is different and it belongs to another family and there's, there's another family in in Austrany, family of words in austronesian that gives you um the word for night in, say, Polynesian languages, and it has reflexes in Malaya Polynesian, fur- further west. Reflexes for our listeners basically yeah. being daughter forms, like the form- forms. forms, yeah. Oh. yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, so the Gatme word is very good for Philippine languages, uh, and we know from history that it goes back to a form that would have had a, a capital R in standard issue Proto-Malayo-Polynesian, e you know, or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and words in Philippine languages descend from this, um, but it's not necessarily going to be the case of Malay or Javanese or Samoan or whatever. Um, lexico statistics is a study of development in language using lexicon. Generally, it's used to refer to the kind of Study that involves a historical dimension, uh, where you compare two or three or more languages and try and discover as much about the language from which they all descended as you can using data that are from the vocabulary. So lexico statistics doesn't have to involve the Swadesh list, but generally that's what people use as a point to start off with, because it's widespread and it's convenient. And it's an attempt
0: to find words that would be almost, uni- it has its limitations, but it yeah. would attempt to find words that would be uh, what we call stable, where they don't change much uh, universal uh, words that like the theory would be that most languages would have a word for these concepts. Um, and so it's, it's a, it's a simple enough to be generalizable, so to speak.
2: Yeah. yeah. Um, and the idea is that the words that are, on the list are ones that are least likely to have come into particular languages through borrowing so it's an attempt to come across a kind of borrowing proof list
0: and you tend to find words on these lists that are very how do i say very um personal and very basic on human at the human experience right so you you find words like body parts and things like you know things that everybody across the world experiences or comes in contact with or has to give names for. Um, it, it's very, very basic to the human experience.
2: Yes. That, that, that was the original idea. So you get lower numerals like one, two, three, four, five. You get body parts. You've got things like water and fire and earth and the sky and clouds. Um, you've got verbs like to, to come and to burn and to walk. Uh, you've got a small number of adjectives, you've got a lot of the basic colours like black, white, red, and words like good and warm and cold. Um, and you've got a small number of what we can call function words um, for want of calling them anything a bit more precise, like pronouns, I and you, and here and there. And a word meaning not, a a basic negator and things like that. Right. Um, And trying to map these onto the the meaning systems, the semantic systems of various languages is not as straightforward as it always sounds. Um, But it's a place to start. Um,
0: What is the what is the ultimate goal? So you have these two languages, you do a statistical analysis of how closely they're related based on these cognates. And what is the goal of doing that?
2: Oh, it's to to get further insights into the history of the joint origins and periods of joint development of two or more languages from times before our written records. Um, I mean, the Philippine languages, you know, we know, that there was a period when you know, Tagalog and Bicol and the Visayan languages were all part of one group. And we've got plenty of evidence for this, and quite a bit of it comes from lexico statistics. But nobody was there at the time. Nobody was sitting in the Philippines round or before the time of Christ, noting down the language as it was being spoken, and as it was spreading through the Visayas and going north to Luzon and you know south to Mindanao. Lapu Lapu wasn't commissioning dictionaries? No.
0: (laughs) I hate to break it to you. (laughs) Well, I I guess uh, uh, Magellan did bring, uh, at least he gave us that. He brought us, you know, uh, his successors did start making dictionaries over the years.
2: Well, Picafetta gets a Cebuano word list. He does. Malay loans in it. And he publishes it. Yep. Um, and that's before we start getting you know, work from northern Luson um, on you know, Ilocano and I think um, Ibanag, I think there's a, 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 a 16th century grammar of Ibanag and you know, stuff like the Doctrina Christiana in Tagalog at the end of the 16th century. It's it right. a good few decades before that. Yeah, that's um, right. And of course there is written material from the Philippines before then, but you know, we couldn't read it because... You know, we, we didn't know that, you know, the bye script script, Other right. people did, and we had to ask them. Right, right. Yeah, that's another interesting topic,
0: by the way. Yeah. Um, but, okay, I want to follow up with you on this. So, basically, we're talking about lexical statistics, and it's the, we, we know more, it, it gives us insights into the development of language, particularly before we have written records and so on. Yes. But here's where it gets a little controversial, because Swadesh went one step further. Yes. Yeah said Swadesh introduced this idea of a of glottal chronology or a glotto clock yeah. and his suggestion was based on his research um, in Salish, which was in North America um, he decided or he determined or believed that language changes at a fixed rate so that if you could determine the distance between two languages, then you could also determine, at what point in the past those two languages diverged now I um, that is at least in my circles that that I have run in that has been a um, a concept that has been disproven or is no longer believed for several reasons and I even in your book uh, quantitative approaches to linguistic diversity Paul Haggerty talked about the the publicized divorce of lexicostatistics statistics from glottal chronology um, so my question on this is you know, how do I mean have we completely thrown out glottochronology? Is that good that we've done that? Um, is there a lexico clock? I mean, talk about this well
2: um, I have big doubts about glottochronology and its its validity because if you apply glottochronology, you get one of three results. You get a result which is pretty much approximately the, the period of time split. The time depth, as we call it, that other evidence would suggest pertains to a group of two or more languages. So it's pretty accurate. And the other two results are ones where it underestimates the period of of time split, period of divergence, and ones where it overestimates the period of divergence. And the problem is you can never tell which of the three you're going to get. And you can never tell which is going to be right.
0: Is this because, for lots of reasons, there is no fixed rate of change? Yes. Okay. I'm sorry. You do throw out the idea of a fixed rate of change.
2: Pretty much. It would be nice to have a fixed rate of change. We want a fixed rate of change. We'd be very happy if we had one, and Santa Claus gave us one, but <laughs> we haven't got one. Um, change can be faster or slower. Um, when you look at the history of English, um, there seems to be, have been a greater speed of change in English between, say, 1100 and 1500.
0: Well, with this, for this would be because you've got the English, so to speak, speaking, so to speak, English all up until, you know, the Normans arrived in from France. And mm. all of a sudden you have this 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 influx of French. Uh, which has a status uh, 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 prestige, so to speak, and all of a sudden you speed up the rate of change in English.
2: You, not only that, but you've also got northern dialects of English and eastern dialects of English absorbing a lot of words from Norse, which slowly make their way down to the south to the varieties of English that come to influence standard English. And that takes quite some time. There's quite a bit of dialect mixture. Um, in the 14th century, thanks to that other notorious pandemic, the Black Death. 1348 to 1351, the population of England, and I have to restrict it to England, um, I don't know what happened in Scotland, is reduced by between a third and a half. You, You get societal change on an unprecedented scale and people start moving, especially from north to south, because the north has been poorer ever since uh, William the Conqueror broke the power of, of the North and the power of Northumbria and of York um, a few years after he conquered England in the 1060s and 1070s. And so you get a lot of dialect change. You get Northern features coming into, well, suddenly varieties and vice versa because of population movements. Under as, me- as many or almost as many words of Norse origin on the longest Swadesh list for English as there are our words of French origin.
0: So if I understand what you're saying, uh, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, that glottal chronology should not be completely thrown out, but we have to understand that there are a lot of factors that come into play in the rate of language change so that we almost have to be historians as well in order to be able to attempt to pinpoint some of these.
2: That's the case. Um, I mean, it's worth doing a glottochronological calculations and seeing where it would put you. Uh, But if documented history of other kinds, such as what we know from royal takeovers or uh, dynasties or dynasties or whatever contradicts it, then go with this other kind of history rather than glottochronology. Because so many factors can throw things out. Borrowing is a huge factor. Right. Right. Borrowing from closely related languages is a huge factor in many cases. Right. right. Uh, borrowing from an ancestral form of the language is a big thing in many cases, not in English, but on longer lists, it has a role in French. It has a role in Spanish. Um, and languages like to innovate as well. Um. um there are many words in any language, but not least in English, where you try and find out what their origin is, and you just hit a brick wall pretty early on and can't get beyond it.
0: I think Lyle Campbell has a list of like, I'm um, off the top of my head, eight or nine different ways in which languages coin words. Yes, it's. It, I mean, it, and when you when you look at it, it's a fascinating list. It, a lot of these things that you don't even think about the way we just make up words, not out of out of the blue. No. I mean, Based on something, but we're very creative in making up words.
2: Indeed, um, we are poetic creatures. So metaphors and extensions of metaphors plays a large part. I mean, you take a word like throw. Um, our word throw didn't originally mean take something and launch it into the air. It meant spin it around, turn it. And um, we still use it. we still use it in the sense of throwing a pot. Um, you, know, when you when you've got a, a potter's wheel and somebody working the treadle and they've got a lump of clay and it's turning around and they, they're making a pot, they're spinning the, the wheel around and the clay's moving around and they're shaping it. And certainly in British English, we call that throwing pots. And that's the original sense of the word to throw. Well, let me ask you this.
0: When we're doing lexical statistics, you're only looking at the lexicon. Uh, and for our listeners who don't know, when we say lexicon, we mean... The words of the language just by themselves, the words uh, like the dictionary, so to speak, the word list of the language, the words that exist in the language. When you're doing lexical statistics, it's lexico statistics. Yes. So you're basically looking at the lexicon, meaning you're not looking at sentence structure. You're not looking at what words go in front of what words or what words go behind or what words get grouped Ooh. into phrases. You're not looking at um, uh, like gr- unique grammatical features like uh, like word, like subject object verb or, or you're not looking at these at grammar or syntax so to speak you can be looking at phonetics and phonology in, in, in as much as they affect you know the actual words themselves but my question is first of all is this true and second if that's true it seems to suggest that languages are their words not so much their words and their and their grammar and their phonology and uh, maybe I've formed the question wrong, but it seems to be that you—it you know, suggests that languages are primarily the collection
2: of their words and not the other. Well, what you say—the first part about what lexicostatistics involves itself with—is is true. Uh, although, because of the nature of the Swadesh list, you also get some grammar flavored things as well. I mentioned the personal pronouns, um. You get things such as interrogative pronouns. You get some adverbs as well. Um, Lexico statisticians don't just just see languages as what American dialectologist Michael Montgomery called bags of words. What they do is they work with a vocab, with the lexicon, the words, because they're the easiest ones to get hold of and to try and quantify and systematize so that they can be studied more easily. Um, There are other ways of looking at uh, parts of a language structure uh, which give insights, um, but the the vocabulary is the easiest part to start with. Uh, When it comes to grammar, there are are other ways of uh, looking at these things and they're, they're very good for individual groups of languages. But sometimes you'd find that the universality of application isn't as good as you would hope. May I give an example? Um, Our mutual friend David Zork's functor analysis. Fantastic approach. But if you look at 100 features in the functor analysis, and it works very well, the set of 100 features that you would use for looking, say, at Visayan languages or you know, Philippine languages in general, and the set of features that you would use for looking at, to give an, uh, another example from his work, the Yomu languages of the Northern Territory of Australia, they're going to be very different kinds of features because the structures of the languages are very different. And also, I mean, if you said, right, I've got you'll know I've got Tagalog, what else will I have? Oh, let's have, say, Cantonese or Hokkien or Mandarin. You can draw a, a list of 100 functors for Cantonese, Mandarin, or Hokkien, no trouble, it'll take you a bit of time. You can come up with a very good list. But the features that are encoded, the, fe- the things that these features express on this list for Chinese languages are going to be different in many, many cases from those for Philippine languages or, Parmanian and Australian Aboriginal languages. Let me give an example on this. I'll give two quick sure. examples. Um,
0: so I, I can't speak to the to the Chinese languages. I'm very careful not to say Chinese language, by the way. The Chinese yeah. languages. Um, I can't speak to those, but I do know that, like, if if you were to do a list, uh, like David's Functor list, and you do it of of, of Cebuano, I say I work with Bantayanon, but I say Cebuano because more people recognize that name. So if you were to do it of Cebuano in English you would possibly run across the difficulty of the fact that Cebuano has inclusive and exclusive third person pronouns. Yeah. So, I mean, you wouldn't really have a word in English for, um, uh, kami and kita. Yeah. So the other example, uh, but where they're, they have two words for we, they only have one word for the third person singular. Yeah. Word, so that when we have he and she, they have "siya" or sila. Yeah. So, it's um you it would be a very it wouldn't be very helpful to have those words on a list to compare those two, but if you take that same list and you go and you compare ilongo and bantayanon and Waray, Wadai, then all of a sudden you're playing in the same
2: ballpark absolutely and this this is where you get a kind of typological similarity as well um I mean as it happens, the three uh, language groups that I mentioned—the sort of the Philippine, the Yolnu, and the Chinese ones—a distinction between inclusive and exclusive we would be useful. It's not universal. It would be useful on all of those lists. Um, some Chinese languages make a distinction between we including the hearer and we excluding the hearer, and some don't. But most of the European languages, it wouldn't be much use. By the way, thanks for giving the explanation
0: of what inclusive and exclusive was, because That's I okay. <laughs> I'm supposed we're supposed to be making this user friendly, uh, yes. Anthony. So, OK, so but I was leading up to something on that question, and that is this. And I, I, I hope my my listeners or our listeners don't get too irritated with me, but I come from a particular point of view. Right. As far as languages goes, I speak French and Portuguese. Um, And I also do work in the Philippines. So those are the ones that I know the best. So I speak a lot from a Philippine perspective in this, but there is a huge amount of disagreement across the world as to where you draw the line between languages to the point that some people don't even like to talk about languages. They talk about speech varieties. I mean, and so the extremes are you can make the case, you know, logically that there are as many languages as there are people. And then you can also because everybody speaks differently. And then you can also go so far as they do in the Philippines and say there are only seven languages in the Philippines because those are the ones with over a million speakers or so. To speak. mm. so the, what I'm what I'm getting at is can lexico statistics help us to I have an idea of where to draw the line between two languages? Let me just say before you answer um, for our read for our listeners you have a lot of ways that we draw the line between languages. Sometimes we draw it between, on political borders, like in Scandinavia, we draw mm. it on political borders. We draw, the, um, uh, we draw it on his, history. Um, I'll give you an example on that. I once was in London, sitting next to a guy from London, and the guy on the other side of him was Irish. And the guy in between us, was literally translating for me what the guy from Ireland was saying and back and forth because we couldn't understand each other. And mm-hmm. yet it said that we're speaking the same language. Yeah. However, you know, you have this situation where, you know, on the borders between, you know, like uh, Paraguay and Brazil, a Spanish speaker and a Portuguese speaker can understand each other fairly well. So we have a difficulty uh, deciding what we call language in my specific context. Um, because Bantayanon is so small, and because it's covered, so to speak, geographically in the administrative region of Cebu, a lot of people consider it to be, uh, you know, like a, a a a a a a small version or dialect of Cebuano, which it definitely is not, because it's much more related to Ilongo. But then you have people that want to go even further and talk about Bisayan languages. the mm. Bisayan language and then separate all the other ones out into dialects so Mm -hmm. where you could start in the east and you could move a, a little distance each year and by the time you got to the west you would still be understood but if you took a plane from the east to the west you would completely be lost so here's my question um can can lexico statistics help us to finally overcome this dilemma that we have of where to draw the line between languages
2: well, I think we can use lexical statistics to help us define. Um, I mean, what I, I use the term lect generally. You know, take two lects. Like a speech variety. Uh, a lect is a speech variety that somebody is using at a certain time, or at a certain place. Because yeah. even if we have idiolects, uh, lects that are Rs and Rs alone, we, we all have a range of them. Um, you know, we have registers, we have vocabulary, we have lots of. Um, individual features that we would use with some people and not with others um, so everybody has, has a repertoire of video lex um, lexical statistics can be used to give a kind of approximate picture of the degree of division between uh, two lets and um a lot of Lexico t- statisticians in the fifties and sixties were uh, enthused by this and decided that you know, a, a dialect became a language when its closest relative was had, say, an eighty percent cognacy rate on the Swadesh hundred word list and things like that.
0: Yeah, but um, I've always thought that when you see these percentages, there's very little, objectively speaking, that these percentages are based on. Absolutely,
2: very little. Probably. Hunches and nothing more. Um, and you can state this and say, "Oh, right, uh, two languages that have more than eighty percent cognates, eighty-one percent above, they're going to be dialects of the same language." To which I say to you, "Okay, here's an example. Go to the Chinese embassy, in the nearest Chinese embassy to some to you, and bring out somebody who works at the Chinese embassy, and take them." for a meal in your nearest Chinese restaurant. And if this is in Britain, the Chinese restaurant people are going to be people who speak Cantonese. Chinese embassy people are people who are going to speak Putonghua, Mandarin. Putonghua and, and Cantonese have an 89% share, 89% cognate on the Swedish 100-word list. Mm-hmm. They are mutually more or less completely unintelligible. Is that due to
0: the lexicon or is that due to phonology?
2: Um, it's mostly due to phonology. Phonology is so different. Yeah. Uh, you know, Cantonese has preserved reflex, um, echoes or daughter forms of some sounds that Mandarin will have merged and vice versa. Cantonese has six tones at least and Mandarin has four or five, depending on your variety. Cantonese has a greater number of consonants that can end a syllable than Mandarin has. Um, it's got a wider range of vowels. It's got vowel length for some of the vowels, which Mandarin tends not to have, and so on and so forth. Just really um, quick for our listeners an example of, in English, of
0: what you're talking about when you say vowel length the difference between sat, S A T, and sad, if you think about it, if you pay close attention, you're saying sat it takes a lot less time to say the "at" ah than it does the "at" ah in said. And that's because those the following consonants, the T and the D, affect what they call the length of that vowel. And what you're saying is that in some languages, those the length of that vowel can actually make a difference in a word.
2: Yes. So Lexico Statistics has its uses for this, and it's always worth running checks and seeing what the cognate rates are and the percentages and so on. But using it to define languages and dialects can give you false positives. And the Mandarin Cantonese case is is one such. Right. I think this this language dialect
0: question is one that's probably just unanswerable friend. Uh, It's Mm -hmm. it's 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 very difficult. It depends so much on power dynamics and Mm -hmm. and geography
2: and politics and everything else. It's got so many facets. That's a problem. When you think you've nailed down one part of the question, another part pops up at the other side. and You've got to start out interrogating that and coming up with answers for the problems that that presents.
1: So I want to jump back to the topic of cognates for a moment, because I think that there's a lot of things there that listeners, especially non-linguists, are probably curious about because they see this trend where words seem to be similar amongst languages that they Mm. know. So when you're talking about cognitive sets uh, and these kinds of comparisons, how reliable are the comparisons when arguably cognacy tends to be subjective? Do you, or do you actually think that it is subjective?
2: Well, ideally they shouldn't be subjective because we use a wondrous uh, heuristic device, a wondrous discovery that is historical phonology and the... Uh, belief that sound laws and sound correspondences between languages are the first best place to start comparing two languages, but not without exceptions. The neo-grammarians in the 19th century meant very, very well. Um, they thought that sound laws couldn't admit of any exceptions. Um, they had a principle which in German they called the Ausnahmslosigkeit der Lautgesetze, Um But sound laws do have exceptions because words interfere with one another. If there are too many words that sound similar to one another, one may change its form a little bit or may just drop out of the language. Um, So we have to assume that historical phonology works perfectly until we discover points where the sets of correspondences that we generate don't fully apply, and when that happens, that's where we start looking for explanations. Try and find out why they don't work. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. That makes
1: sense. So I know we'd already kind of touched on the Swadesh list and the idea of these um, universal elicitations, and there have been other iterations by people like Is and himes And I'm just wondering how you feel about the possibility of there being a universal list uh,
2: in the Swadesh style. Well, there have been attempts to draw them up, um, but not all items are universal. That's the thing. I mean, on the Swadesh list, you can look at words like "to freeze," "snow," "ice." Um, they're not a great deal of use in the Philippines.
0: <laughs> uh, you can, you know, you can... I, uh, You know, my wife just moved here this year. For she's Ilonga. She's from uh, Negros uh, uh, Occidental. And uh, it got down into the 80s. And she was like, oh, babe, i <laughs> now. So she she was complaining it was getting cold when it got down into the 80s. So <laughs> I know what you mean.
2: Well, I, th- I think you're, you're best off living in Louisiana in that case because, You get humidity like it's unbelievable at and 12, but at least it's warm most of the time. Uh, Thank her her star she doesn't live in somewhere like the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. True, true. Um, (laughs) But you were saying? Yeah, well, universality it would be nice, but you can always get, I suppose, naysayers or, or people who are being devil's advocates taking any list and saying, well, this can't be universal because in language X, this word is expressed by the same word as you used to express another concept on this list. Or you can say, we don't have this concept at all, or you know we don't make this distinction. You know, Wife and woman, for example, um, are the same in many languages. Um, well, in German, Frau is the usual response. You can have another word for woman, and you can have uh, other words for wife, which are a bit more formal, like Gattin or Erfrau. Um, so absolute universality is probably not achievable. Um, general applicability though is achievable. And as long as one takes into account, you know, cultural differences, geographical differences, and, you know, the differences that languages have when their, um, vocabularies are, are organized in different ways. Um, right. Yeah, English and German have a lot of overlaps in this regard but there are certain differences you want a word for to know in German, do you want the word that means to know a person or a place, kennen or do you want to, the word that means to know a fact, which is wissen and in Russian you've got znach, means to know a person or a place or a fact, but you've got umidz, which means to know how to do something and which of these are you going to pick? For our listeners that are familiar
0: with, um, they've taken Spanish classes and French classes, this is the same distinction between your savoir and your connaître, yeah. or your connaissaire and your savoir.
2: Absolutely. Um, and it's a distinction that English had and has lost. So English used to be in this team as well. I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. Um, basically, the the form that meant to know a fact got, pushed out over time by the form that meant to know a person or place. Knawan was to know a person. Witan was to know a thing. And all we have from that is, is a phrase God what, meaning you know, God knows, which is very archaic and is sort of pseudo-archaic and pseudo-formal. And the word wit, which originally meant knowledge on wisdom and now just means sort of verbal dexterity oh i never knew that and you know witness and witness and so on a witness is someone who knows something or someone someone with knowledge about a criminal incident for example or knowledge about a legal deposition taking place that's interesting uh, i never knew that that's so we've got lots of the side issues there well, you know the side salad of the word but the actual core staple meaning you know the meaning at the heart of it right. has been supplanted by another word
0: right Okay. Well, let's see. We're almost done here. I am uh, I do want to mention to my listeners that I asked you the question, what resources could they go to? And you mentioned the World Atlas of Language Structures, which I will post on the show notes for this episode, mm-hmm. wals.info. And this is really interesting too, because it tries to talk about some of these structures that and where they appear in languages that oftentimes aren't mm. even closely related. Um, the other thing that you mentioned was obviously the Moorish uh, Swadesh works. Uh, a lot of them are av- available on Google. Uh, I know I got my copy of or- uh, origin and diversification from eBay for just a few dollars. So, and then you also mentioned a researcher named uh, Johan Mattis List. Yes. That, uh, I did look him up. He's available on, on Google as well. Yes, he's so, got all his stuff on academia. Okay, two more quick questions. Okay, a completed Swadesh list may not be the time machine is you know that we're hoping for as far as semantic, phonological, morphological features of a language. Um, but you mentioned an exercise uh, with typologists that you do with David Peterson's Dothraki list.
2: Yes, right. Well,
0: I, I just completely screwed that question up. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna re ask it. I'm gonna re ask it and edit that in. Yeah. Anyway, you've got the question. Okay,
2: the, I, the question you wanted to ask you know, <laughs> uh, me um, to leave this in as a matter of fact. What can you do with a sw- uh, Swadesh list? Um if you realize that the the historical glotto chrono- chronological aspect of I it mean, doesn't really work. What what else is a Swadesh list good for? Well, Swadesh is glotto chronological ideas Um, are not very strong. It's a pity that they're not, but they're not. uh, He did his best. But the lists are very useful because they tell you quite a bit about the language. They give you some vocabulary. They give you an idea of, you know, phonemes that occur in the language. They give you a taste of the templatic phonology. Can the language tolerate vowel final words? Can you have checked syllables in initial position? How many consonants can you have in an onset? That kind of thing. Uh, do, you need a, do you need a continental onset at all? Um, they can also give you some idea about aspects of the semantics. Um, words like husband and man are both on the list, woman and wife are both on the list. Uh, does the language use a form for husband that is man plus something else? Or does it use a different word completely? Or does it use just the word for man and stretch the semantics of it to in- include husband? And also, um, you know, the same for wife. Is a wife and woman the same word? Is wife woman plus something else? Or is wife a completely different word? So you can get quite a bit of information on a language from that. Uh-huh. Um, with a dothraki list, You can actually discover that you can can have more than one consonant onset initially in a language. But the second consonant is one of a restricted set, which is quite handy when you are wanting to teach a little bit about phonology to people. Um, So Swadesh lists are not to be sneezed at. They are full of useful information, um, even if they don't give you the sort of Indiana Jones style historical insights that we really rather wish they did.
0: Right. So basically what you're saying is the Swadesh list has not accomplished what it set out to accomplish, but right. it's accomplished a lot that makes it that continues to make it very, very
2: useful. Yes, it's accomplished other things it wasn't designed for. Right. Well, In- I did, I used it. I've got a Bantayan on the Swatish list. I'm glad to hear it. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so I think it. David, David Zork wanted it. I think I sent it to him already, but we'll see.
2: <laughs> <laughs> but what about the Darth Rocky list? Well, the Dothraki list is out there on the internet. Dave Peterson made sure that his Dothraki stuff is out there, and if you're finding the students find Dothraki easy, then give them the High Valyrian list, which is phonologically phonologically a lot more complex and will keep them puzzling for hours. They <laughs> may never speak to you again, but uh, it's there's lots of good stuff on it. Um, it's. And of, and of course, the properties of High Valyrian, because it's completely unrelated to Dothraki, are different from those of Dothraki. So even artificial languages that sprung from somebody's brain can give insights into facets of linguistic diversity.
0: That's an interesting point.
2: Thank you. Yes,
0: because we are come. I've got. We're up to an hour and eighteen minutes, and I wanted to keep it total under forty minutes, so I'm going to have to edit some out. So, okay. You teased us at the beginning of the interview that you were coming back to this question of public libraries. After having talked to you, I know that you have a special uh, affinity for public libraries. Can you tell us about that? Yes.
2: Public libraries are good. They're a part of the social good. They're part of the common good. Um, and people of just about any political ideology should see this. Um, Americans should know this because of Andrew Carnegie, you know, the steel magnet from Kirkoddy in Fife in Scotland who went to Pennsylvania and made a humongous amount of money uh, and spent it on libraries. Libraries are extremely good and should be kept open and should be kept well stocked with materials um, and be open access. Anybody who can apply for a library card and can borrow things. Um, The problem is that in Britain... Um, libraries are regarded with a bit of disdain by governments and by local authorities and tend to get closed a lot, and a lot of their stock tends to get sold off. I have bought uh, via a well-known online sales forum named after uh, mythical female warriors in Greek mythology. (laughs) Um, Took me a second, but I got it. Go <laughs> um, I have bought books from there that I'm glad to have, and I've also bought them from a, a well known second hand book depository online. Um, on one or two occasions, I bought the very same book I used to look at when I was at the University of York as an undergraduate in the library, and I bought books that have come from libraries throughout Britain that have been got rid of. And the problem is that people have lost the sense that um, by getting rid of all the copies of one book, you are getting rid of a particular source of knowledge. And I would say that if I tried to do in 2020 what I was able to do in 1975 and and try and learn about Maurice Swadesh and learn about academic journals and learn about what academic linguistics was about, I wouldn't have a chance nowadays because the Sixth floor, the six-story public library I went to on a two-weekly basis in Bradford in the 1970s is no more. And a city of 300,000 people has a joke of a library that is at most two floors in a one storefront-sized building that is next to a branch of A well-known coffee chain named after a character in Moby Dick. (laughs) I'm trying to avoid getting sued here. A lot of illusions in this uh, podcast here. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, And it's absolutely scandalous that this has been allowed to happen. And I attribute it to anti-intellectualism on the part of British local, municipal, and national politicians. And we will reap this particular world when we're already beginning to do so with pandemic people you can't go into libraries, and when libraries are open back they'll find that they've been depleted of their stock and this is another kind of brain drain, and it should never have allowed been allowed to happen.
0: no, I agree with you there on a, a, a quick personal story um i when i st- when I started at Tulane my goal. And I had been accepted at Tulane with the intention of doing work in Brazil. And um, it didn't work out for several reasons. So uh, Judy Maxwell told me that since it wasn't my fault, that I could choose anywhere else in the world and I could go somewhere else. And so I was standing in the library at Tulane, walking through the language books and came across this big yellow book called A Dictionary of Cebuano Visayan by John Wolfe.
2: Oh, yeah.
0: And um, I, I, I've since. I've, I've, I've had lunch in with John Wolfe in Mandawi. Fantastic gentlemen, but I can probably I make too. an argument. Uh, you can probably make the argument that I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing today. Had I not happened on
2: that big yellow book. Yeah. Same as if I hadn't happened on that badly dust jacketed copy of Swadesh 1971, I could well be doing something different. No, it makes total sense. Well, Anthony, we didn't get to all the questions, but this was fascinating and fun. Thank you very much, Jared. Thanks for inviting me. It's been great, and it's been great talking to you and uh, to the listeners. Love linguistics, love languages, literally bontougoule, and um, keep keep the faith. Amen to that. Okay. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.
0: In closing, remember to check out the show notes at weeklylinguist.com. There you will find further information about this episode. Like more information about the guest, a selected bibliography, and any links mentioned in this episode. As the saying goes, if you enjoyed the podcast, tell a friend. If you didn't, tell us. You can tell a friend by rating us 5 stars on iTunes and by writing a glowing endorsement in the reviews. Don't forget to subscribe when you're done and follow us on Instagram or Twitter at Weekly Linguist. For any feedback, positive or crit- critical, <laughs> write to us at podcast at Tell us what you think, what we can do better, or even suggest a topic, uh, a topic for an upcoming episode. <music>